Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by no one because I am sitting here in my study on my own. Uh, we are all working remotely. The office is shut. Uh, everyone is working at home. Yesterday we uh, we tried to get the magazine out. We did get the magazine out uh, without actually being present in the office for the first time ever. It was a huge challenge. Fourteen hours at the kitchen table uh, on top of ten hours a day before. Difficult times for us, but more difficult for many other people. And that is why we've chosen this week to focus on the healthcare side of things. Our former colleague, Megan Boxall, has now rejoined the Investors Chronicle. uh, And she has written the cover feature this week, looking at how the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry more generally, is responding to this crisis and what the long-term implications could be for that sector. And in fact, healthcare uh, in general. Uh, It's a great feature, and I'll be speaking to her about that very shortly. And then I'll be speaking to Phil about some of the continuing economic effects of this crisis, uh, and in particular the government's response, and what that means for uh, for markets generally, uh, and whether it's going to be enough to, to deal with a problem of this magnitude. First of all, let's turn to healthcare and Megan Boxall. Welcome back to the Investors Chronicle and, uh, and the podcast, Megan. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. It's good to be back, albeit... From a distance. Yeah, it's it's a very strange uh, way we're recording this. You've picked a great time to, to come back to us, but I'm glad you have because uh, because before you left, you wrote a lot about healthcare, and that's obviously one of the pressing concerns at the centre of this crisis uh, we're living at the moment. So you've written the cover feature this week, Fight Back, which is about the companies that are looking to find solutions to either curing or vaccinating against or diagnosing coronavirus, COVID-19, and, and what that means for, for investors. So uh, yeah, well, I mean, where do you start with this? I think where we're at in terms of the disease. Should we go through the numbers? I mean, they're a bit yeah, scary, so, but tell us yeah, what they, they, are, what they are and what they mean. They're a bit scary and also they're changing so quickly. So by the time people are listening to this, they're probably higher, but they can be checked all the time online. We're currently at the time of recording at 227,505 cases worldwide and nine, just over 9,000 deaths. They're only, and this is, I think, the most important thing to talk about in terms of what those numbers actually mean, it's only what we know. The number of people who've got coronavirus may be much, much higher. And that's that would be a really good thing to say where well, this is only the tip of the iceberg. That would be great. If it turns out that loads and loads of people have got coronavirus and just not known about it, that'd be great because it means that actually there are people whose symptoms have never been bad enough to be tested. Yeah, the numbers are scary, but they do need to be taken in, in context. For sure. So, so the context you've you've chosen to focus on in the feature is the comparison with the sort of normal winter flu, which obviously kills a lot of people as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. And and the so the average in the UK is about seventeen thousand, which it's that's a huge number, but it does make the twenty thousand people that might die from coronavirus seem a little bit less scary. The issue is obviously the death rate at the moment. The confirmed death rate is extraordinarily high. It's just under four percent. But that is based on confirmed cases. So if that is the correct stat, if everyone who gets the disease, 4% of those people will die, then, yeah, we need to make sure as, as few people as possible get the disease. But actually, if the number is much higher than that, which it probably is, who've been infected, the death rate is going gonna, is gonna to be much lower. And it may, it may actually be more like the normal flu is, which is 0.1%. So, so that would, would be... A really good sign, but obviously we need to get there first. We need to find out exactly how many people have been have had the, had coronavirus and, and not known about it. 
Diagnostics, we'll come on to that. I, I guess what, mm-hmm. what you're talking about, the fact that people may have had this already and not known about it or had only very mild symptoms is part of the reason why this is so such a big concern. That, mm-hmm. that, so people are what they call asymptomatic. So people can go about their daily business spreading this uh, without even knowing, um, which yeah, I guess I is mean, why the reaction has been what it has been in terms of what the authorities are doing. Yeah, and I think the so we've we've had two pretty major government policies, two completely different policies, which the change was made on Monday. So last week, the UK government was saying we want we want to end up with what's called herd immunity, where uh, enough people have contracted the disease that there aren't enough people left to spread it to. And that works very well for things like the common cold, because the symptoms are not really bad enough to, to kill people, but they you build up a, an immunity as a group which means that it stops being spread and, and the virus is, is kind of killed off because it's got nowhere else to go to. And that's fine if for a disease where the symptoms aren't bad enough, but for a disease which the coronavirus could be, we don't know yet for sure, but it could be killing 4% of the people who've got it. We definitely don't want to be allowing 60% of the UK population to be getting coronavirus if it is then going to be killing 4% of those people. So, so that's why the government policy has changed in the so last week. So the government week. policy changed based on some research which came out of Imperial College London, which was based on numbers from both Italy and from China, which obviously China is about six weeks ahead of us. Italy is about three weeks ahead of us in terms of when the coronavirus hit and how many people are affected. If we're looking at China now, China is actually extremely positive. China didn't have any new cases, domestic cases reported yesterday. Uh, that was the first date that they didn't have any new ones, which that's amazing. That is hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel. But we do have to get through the Italy stage first. What the government is doing with its current policy, keeping people indoors, shutting schools, trying to avoid as much contact as possible, is trying to trying to avoid the Italy situation, the complete overwhelming situation on hospitals, on the healthcare service, on on individuals, because what's happening in Italy at the moment is is quite grim and we just don't want to be there. Yeah, I mean, so, so I guess that that's uh, about the ability of the healthcare system to cope. So this mm. is what the government yeah. is trying to avoid, that the NHS becoming swamped with, with cases to yeah. the point that it can't treat people and that's when people start to die. Yeah. Exactly. Should we talk about some of the the responses that the pharmaceutical industry is is taking? The, so, so there's, I guess, there's several strands to this: treating the illness itself, uh, vaccination to prevent people getting the illness in the first place, and working out who's actually got it. The diagnostic mm-hmm. side of things, and then there's some other stuff as well around actually delivery of healthcare, which you talk about in the feature. Yeah, yeah, and delivery of healthcare, is, it could that could be a really like long term trend, a long term shift. So it's it's definitely worth looking at some of the companies that are involved in that kind of thing, which we, we do talk about and we'll continue to talk about in the next few weeks. We're, we're, we're looking, we're always on the hunt for companies that might be ready to benefit from this, even though benefit's a horrible word at the moment. But it is, there are, will be companies that will come out of the other side of it, maybe better. But for now, the pharmaceutical companies are working on drugs for, to, for patients to take while they're in hospital. They're also working on vaccines. GSK is one that is uh, working on a on a vaccine at the moment. It's got a platform which it's it's kind of renting out to other pharmaceutical companies, including one in China. This could end up being a really good thing for GSK's vaccines business. And it's and it's a big part of its business. It is. Yeah. Twenty twenty one percent of revenues, I think you say. Twenty one percent of revenues, yeah. And it's an incredibly high margin part of the business as well. So a boost to that part could be could be good for the long term investment case for. GSK. Lots of companies trying to find a vaccine at the moment, though, and there's been yeah. t- there's some really interesting approaches 
companies are taking to this. There's uh, there's some candidates that, that people seem to have had sort of lurking in their, I think, libraries of, of, of research. Yeah, so drugs that have already been approved are way more likely to be useful during this outbreak of coronavirus because however close we are to a vaccine and the, there is a US company trialing, it's quite a small US company, but it's, it's had some backing from the US government, some financial backing. They've actually started clinical trials into a new vaccine. However good that vaccine is in clinical trials, it is not going to be let out into the market until the safety tests have all been done because it would be way worse to release this vaccine onto the into the world without it being safety tested first. So actually a far quicker option would be to find a drug which has already been approved being safety tested and also works treating coronavirus it's it's gilead's drug that people are most excited about there isn't it i, I can't I, I won't try and pronounce his name i can never pronounce the name of drugs neither can i but <laughs> executive can't either i was on a call once with the chief executive of astrazeneca and he was complaining about these silly names that people are given so even the people high up the uh the pharma world can't say the names of the medicines this drug what's it called is remdesivir why are, people excited, like why are people excited about this one in particular? So it was originally developed to combat Ebola, but it's also proved very effective in the past at treating SARS and MERS, which are both strains of coronavirus. So coronavirus is the whole family of, of illness, of virus. And the current strain which people are worried about is called SARS-CoV-2. And it's so early stage tests have found that this drug, this Gilead drug, Remdesivir, also helps with the current strain of virus that people are being affected by. And there was a patient in the US, he was in hospital in Washington, he had pneumonia and he took medicine and it worked. And now it's being tested in a massive population of people, including in China and Hong Kong and in the US. And because it has already worked on viruses before and it's been safety tested, it could be rolled out into the hospitals. And it's also produced by a massive pharma company with huge manufacturing. And if, if this is the drug they can get out into hospitals really really quickly so that would be be great because there'd be something else to be helping the people who do end up hospitalized so that's not a vaccine that's a that's a, a cure that's a true that's natural medicine yeah um i mean vaccines are important because this thing might lurk around for a while so vaccines are bigger for the long term and i i do think there is going to be a shift in in, in thinking and and we do need to start thinking more about prevention because our hospital systems around the world they're just not set up for this kind of thing and and that's what people are worried about most, the fact that if we do have millions of people getting unwell, we can't handle it. We, and- we, cer- we certainly couldn't handle So we can't invest the amount in healthcare systems that would make them bulletproof when stuff like this does happen. We, we can't afford to shut down the economy time after time after time if things exactly. like this happen again. So one of the changes you're most uh, excited about in terms of what, what COVID could mean for the long-term nature of the healthcare industry is, is around diagnostics. So working out whether people have something, even if they're asymptomatic and sort of making sure that, that testing can prevent sort of a wide-scale breakout of something like this. Why is, why is diagnostics something that excites you? And, and also, I think you mentioned angers you in, in respect of, of, of what's going on. Yeah, the more I read about it, the more angry I get. And I'm trying to, going to try and not get too ranty about it because it is, we've, one of the reasons we're in this situation is because diagnostics has been so overlooked. And it's something that we knew was being overlooked. It's not like, oh, we probably should have done more diagnostics. Everyone knew that diagnostics 
across the board, not just for infectious diseases, but for, for things like cancer and all sorts of illnesses. It's, it's not very good because, and everyone's experienced it because of the process, the diagnostics process. You, we go to the, your GP and you get you give a blood sample and then that's sent off in the post and then it has to go to the, one of these big kits. So they're made by the big companies like Roche and Siemens and Abbott. And there aren't actually that many of them and they all have to go to the same place. And then they wait in a queue and then they go into the machine and then they get tested and then they have to send the letter back to your GP and then you have to go back into the GP. It's a really long-winded process. What needs to happen is there has to be more point-of-care testing. And so when you go into your GP and they take the blood sample, you can get the results there and then. This breakout has really shown why our current way of testing is not good enough. We are currently in the UK only testing patients who've gone into hospitals, which means that if in six weeks' time, if a if a proper test, a point-of-care test is sent out to, and everyone can test themselves and we can send in our results and it will show whether or not we've had coronavirus. If that is the case and millions of us have had coronavirus without even noticing, we've potentially put the economy on lockdown for no reason at all. Mm. And the reason that that's happened is because when the outbreak started, we weren't able to assess people immediately and we had to say, you know, you know what, you have to go home or if you're unwell enough you have to go into hospital because we didn't have enough tests and in the US Roche has now finally they've got a um, a big they've got a test a kit made which can be used but they can it can only be used in these big machines and they shipped 400,000 units of this kit over the weekend but 400,000 isn't enough when there's millions of people in the US and that and that's just in the US and no company companies have the ability to deal with the the volume and the Roche's kit can test I think it's something like 403 hours which is good it's much better than it was but it's still not good enough so what what is needed is a a point of care test or a a do it at home test and it's something that actually Donald Trump was talking a lot about yesterday self-swabs he kept on saying in his press conference that he called a lot of his press conference was bluster but that was a that's something that US diagnostics companies are really focused on is getting that uh, kit out to as many people as possible so we can actually see what we're fighting. I, I spoke to a doctor who said that a doctor, so GPs in the UK have been told that they have to like, work from home, take calls, but they're all preparing to go and start working from hospitals or like makeshift hospitals if the worst comes to the worst. Brave people. And they said, yeah, I mean, amazingly brave people, but they say that it feels like they're fighting a war with a blindfold on with a hand tied behind their backs because they don't actually know what they're fighting and they haven't got the tools to fight it. So that is something that hopefully now we've had this kick, it will it will kick the diagnostics companies into action to start really prioritising point of care testing and and kits that can be used immediately for for cases like this. I mean, something you mentioned in the future is that diagnostics as an industry took a bit of a battering because of uh, mm. the Theranos scandal. Yeah, um, which, yeah, which may have be a reason why the, it has fallen a bit behind because there hasn't been the investment in it. Which is, which is a terrible shame. However, I mean, in the companies that you've, you've looked at, there, there are a lot of companies, including those listed in the UK, that, that are working. I mean, testing is what they're looking at, diagnostics. And, and this, this is, you know, potentially the silver lining of what's happening at the moment is that, mm. that, that these companies 
have a really, really interesting future, not just, you know, because, you know, testing for COVID-19, but testing for all sorts of things in the future. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk us through some of the companies that that that, uh, that are working on really interesting solutions? Yeah, absolutely. So Novosite is one. It's actually listed in France and on AIM. Um, they've actually designed and developed a test uh, and it's being shipped out to hospitals. It's actually being tested in hospitals in the UK at the moment. BATM is another one that has developed and it's got a tests for COVID-19 in production. And then there are other diagnostics companies which are point-of-care ones, like EKF, which its whole focus is on point-of-care testing. And if there is going to be more investment and more interest in that, that's that's great. They should get a real boost. And the other uh, company in the UK, small company in the UK, which is really exposed to diagnostics, is Bioventics. They make the antibodies, which they have to – you need antibodies to run a – a, a blood test in a in one of these big machines but they will if diagnostics is going to be a, a much bigger industry their products are going to be a much higher demand because they make really really good antibodies so yeah there are definitely exciting opportunities long-term opportunities not just sort of the ones that are doing something now companies like Novosite and BATM sound really interesting what they're doing is really really exciting but but because they're small companies they face quite significant challenges particularly as they're up against you know really big companies and and getting up to the scale that they need to is going to be a massive challenge it doesn't seem like a one-way bet for investors no especially as I think both of these companies have probably enjoyed their share price their big share price rises for the time being at least I mean BATM is up 50% today and yeah they're their kits, their diagnostics kits are, could be very beneficial. But like you say, they are competing now with companies, big, big companies, which have massive production lines and can roll out these tests much quicker. And Novosite has had eight months worth of orders in the last couple of weeks, and it just can't manufacture enough tests quickly enough to satisfy the demands. Obviously, they have potentially got very bright long term futures and they've really made a name for themselves. But now they are also takeover targets. They've proven that they can develop these tests very, very quickly, quicker than some of the big ones. I mean, it, they were both ahead of Roche and Abbott's, and I don't even know what Siemens is doing. But the fact that they've proven that they can do it quickly, they uh, bigger companies might be interested in, in either acquiring them or using them in the future to develop sort of the test in the early stages to find the antibody that's needed that the very, very early research and development phase before a big company takes over the manufacturing and the and the final stage development. That that might be a a, a win for these companies in the future, but it's by no means a, a guarantee. I mean, it, it, it all sounds absolutely fascinating. It sounds like it could underpin some quite quite significant changes in the way the industry works. Where the, where the focus lies, and you know, one one of the uh, the really sort of back to basics things I think you mentioned in the feature is is like is is the really simple idea that we should be washing our hands a bit more and cleaning things up yeah. a bit better. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's crazy. I think people didn't really realise how good soap was. China's healthcare policy changed about two years ago, and they're really trying to tick up towards Western medicine, and this is another kick for them. And and maybe there will be opportunities in China to start selling more soap and more hospital cleaning products and well, things like that. Tristel has been one of the big, big beneficiaries of this uh, this outbreak. Yeah, and their chief executive has actually already said that this might be a, a real win for them, which, yeah, it could be. The, the only issue that I think Tristel might have is that they are still quite a small company and they've got this product, which is a fantastic product, but it's not like it can't be replicated. 
And now that China has identified that it needs to be a little bit more hygienic, surely a Chinese company can just start doing what Tristel's doing. And that kind of wipes away Tristel's, Tristel's massive growth market, China. So hopefully Tristel will be able to get its products rolled out in China quickly before companies within China start doing it. But it is a, it's a potential risk. I mean, this is all absolutely fascinating. It is a really interesting industry, which perhaps we sort of neglect from time to time. But it's been brought back into focus by this crisis uh, and obviously has a role, a huge role to play in, in restoring some normality to the world and, and helping us sort of uh, live better in the future without worrying about this kind of thing. It's really reassuring to hear that all this is happening at, at a really difficult time for everybody. Um, so, yeah, thank you. That's okay. Yeah, I think the reassurance thing, obviously, we don't want to be insensitive about what's happening because it is scary but actually having it in context and knowing that healthcare stuff out there is happening and it's happening quicker than it's ever happened before they've got a vaccine into clinical trials within eight weeks which has never been done before so hopefully all the bleak outlook won't actually be quite so bleak once this healthcare stuff really gets going and and it is getting going um and it's good to have you back to write it megan good to be back yeah, it's a, it's a great feature. Obviously, that that's not that's not why we brought you back to write about healthcare. You, you're actually here in a different role. You're our new education editor. Do you want to tell us what what you're going to be doing there? This is all about identifying potential new investors and and new people who hopefully will be interested in in the Investors Chronicle and all of the amazing content that's written, and and bringing it into a into a whole new generation of investors. We're trying to see the. Uh, the outlook has changed quite dramatically from the week that I started in the first week of March and all of a sudden now the markets don't look quite as sunny as they did then but it doesn't mean that there aren't huge opportunities I mean arguably even more so even if people may have been a little bit freaked out by what's happened in the last few weeks but this is uh, this is the time to get going with investment and uh, and hopefully I will help educate that. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't feel like, you know, uh, uh, a good time to get stuck into the markets today necessarily because we have no idea what's going to happen in the next few weeks. No, and I completely sympathise with people's worries about about that and, and the fact that maybe they want to hang off with a little bit, see what's going to happen. But actually, there are some companies now, some amazing companies which are going to get through this and they are significantly cheaper now than they were last month so that, that's true it's worth looking out for them but obviously with a sensible head on it's not a time to just buy anything because as we saw with Laura Ashley not everything is going to survive this no and I, and I think I think what what it has shown as well what what uh, this crisis has shown is that that actually you know investing it's 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 a good thing to do over the long term, but the, perhaps we have been lulled into a false sense of security about how easy it is. And you actually do have to educate yourself and do the hard jars to make sure you do it properly. Megan, it's brilliant to have you back. And uh, as I said, it's a brilliant feature. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we've heard from Megan talking about the healthcare side of things. Uh, and, and it's quite reassuring to hear that there's quite a lot of activity going on to help find a medical solution to the, to the crisis we're facing. But that doesn't necessarily solve um, the economic problems immediately. Um, so, so now I'm going to talk to Phil Oakley um, to, to get your uh, sort of latest assessment of, of where we are in terms of the markets and the economy. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, John. Good. Glad to hear it. Difficult times. What, what do you make of it all, Phil? Uh, I think it's difficult for any, you know, to know what to make of it. I think uh, on the one hand, it's, it's welcome that you're seeing governments trying to help out. It's not particularly going out on a limb to say that the central bankers printing money and cutting interest rates have probably run out of bullets now. 
something different has to be has to be tried. But it's not it's not just solving the problem caused by shutting down because of the the virus. It's all the other problems that have been perhaps forgotten about and hidden away that have reared up again because of it. Well, so what, what sort of problems are we talking about, Phil? We're still we still have an economy that has is carrying too much debt. And when you've got an economy that carries too much debt, it's very difficult to cut the slack that's needed to get things going again because too much income is going to service the debt and therefore you haven't got as much left over to flow into the real economy and people start buying stuff again. Okay, so the solution is to pump a lot of government money into addressing this problem. But isn't that just exacerbating the problem? Where is this money coming from? Yeah, that's a problem. You know, if you, if you, I mean, if you just sort of recap on what the UK government's come out and suggested, or not suggested, said it's going to do. So it's going to basically make £350 billion available. And most of that is actually going to come in the form of um, guarantees for bank loans. So it's not the government showering businesses with cash. It is for businesses that are struggling with paying rents, paying wages, paying suppliers. It's a way of them accessing cash. Um, And this is in stark contrast to, say, the French government, um, where President Macron has pretty much tried to guarantee or replace revenue or the Danish government which has gone down a pretty similar similar route so what you know what a lot of British businesses are are faced with particularly in sectors you know the leisure hospitality uh, retail pubs and bars the revenue for this these kind of businesses is gone you know pretty much gone and you're, you're being asked to replace that revenue and usually that revenue comes with some profit with it and you use that profit to pay your wages and pay your rents and now you're having to replace that with debt. Yeah so companies are essentially just being asked to take on more debt to get through this crisis but they come out the other other side of it even more indebted than they were in the first place. Yeah and it doesn't matter if that that debt is interest free it's still debt that's got to be paid back and you know whilst that might be better than going bust um, I'm not so sure it, um, you know, it solves the problem, which is keeping people in jobs. What's more than likely to happen is that business owners are just going to lay people up. You know, there's already lobbyists within the hospitality area who are saying to the government, "Look, small business owners don't want to take on debt." And there's also, you know, a question of how long it takes for all this kind of stuff to kick in. And this is probably explains one of the reasons why the stock markets are still going down because when you tell people to stay at home and you get the drop in in economic activity that that produces, people buying less, spending less, um, you create a very difficult problem that's very hard to fix. And, you know, you also, you know, start triggering, triggering other issues. And I think the reason the British government's done this just to sort of sort of answer the second part or the first part of the question is where does all the money come from? And that's difficult because uh, since the financial crisis where governments have just borrowed money and they've been able to borrow it the next to no interest rate because central banks have printed money and they've suppressed the interest that governments 
pay on their debt. We may be coming to a tipping point here where central banks can't print enough money to fund the amount of extra spending that's needed. And, you know, you start to worry about interest rates going up, which creates all sorts of problems throughout the economy, which has got too much debt. And then you start getting into issues about currencies as well. Well, the, the pound has taken a battery this week, and I guess that that potentially creates the uh, the, the sort of environment for for inflation as well. Yeah, I mean it does in terms of it pushes up pushes up the price of uh, of imported goods. Whether it creates inflation or not, I don't know because the amount of goods coming into the economy is potentially going to fall by quite a bit. You know, you've got this you've got this sort of deflationary force of people staying at home and economic activity going down and then you've got currency effects um you know we'll see i mean one of the reasons the pound's been going down is it's not just people casting a verdict on the uk i think there's been a huge demand for dollars and so you've seen this huge demand for dollars which has pushed up the price of the dollars against other currencies and the pound has lost has lost out because of that so so the, i mean the dollar presumably because it's a safe haven is, is attractive it's a safe haven but you've also had a lot of demand by companies for for dollars for dollar financing um not just not just in in america but also you know across across the world and that has pushed up the demand for, for dollars and you've seen Something like the, you know, what's known as a dollar index, which measures the value of the dollar against a basket of currencies that has spiked in the last few days, and um, shows you this flocking to the dollar. I mean, it's something you know we've often said: get some diversification by looking at the U.S. Is it is it is it too late to do that? Should investors be thinking still about about diversifying into U.S. shares? Yeah, I don't think it's too late at all. I mean, I, I I'm of the view that. Sadly, I think I know we might be having a bit of a rally on a Thursday afternoon as we're recording this. But you know, my view is that share prices are probably still going to keep on going down for a bit. So it's certainly not too late to build a watch list to start researching um, American companies. You know, I, I retain the view that, that investors out there should should definitely be looking at this form of diversification because I think what's been proven. Um, in the last two, three weeks or the last month is you know, UK shares have been a horrible place to be. Your uh, portfolio valuations of the various big funds uh, and benchmarks, FTSE All Share is down 33.6% year to date. And when you look at Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, that's down, it's down, but it's down a lot less, 18.2%. Fundsmith down 11%. So, 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 you know, some of the big internationally diversified funds are doing a lot better than the UK benchmark index. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, there's a bit of a pound-dollar effect in there as well. Not a massive one, but a small one. Um, yes, and this has been the theme for the last 10 years, really. You know, the FTSE 250, I mean, that that's where the real... The real fear is at the moment, you know, you look at some of the stocks in the, in the 250 and certain sectors of the 250, um, you know, they've, they've been decimated. And many shares are being priced as if they are going out of business. And maybe some of them will. We've talked about travel, leisure, obviously sectors that are, you know, massively dependent on people moving around or going out. They've obviously been hit hard, but what, what else is, is taking a battery? I mean, anything, any, I mean, obviously tra- anything travel related is is continuing to suffer 
Uh, I mean, it's amazing how quickly you know, travel-related stocks have just collapsed. I mean, I, I, I wrote a cover story in the Investors Chronicle last week, and I, you know, I looked at some of these shares and I looked at their share price falls. And you look at them just over a week later and you just cannot believe, you know, some of them have gone down by a further 50, 50% plus. Now, you're looking at shares like Cineworld, Marston's, Hollywood Bowl, um, WH Smith. I mean, these, these companies look like at the end of the world is happening for them. And, you know, there's no doubt that these companies face in the short term, very, very challenging uh, trading conditions. But, you know, I think I think you can be pretty sure that, you know, you have a lot of people, you know, you have investors who specialize in distressed um, investing situations like you're seeing now in the sort of travel and leisure sector. Now, I'm not saying you go and buy these shares now, but, you know, if you are of the view that some of these companies will survive, and that we will get back to normal and levels of activity and levels of profit come back to what they were earning last year. And these shares are screamingly cheap. But as you write in your alpha report though this week, Phil, forecasts are not worth anything right now. So we don't know what's going to happen in the next few months, but, but you can't honestly say that in a year's time, you know, even if an analyst is saying they're going to make what they did a year ago, that that's actually going to be the case. No, I mean, hence why, you know, I, I, I sort of looked at them on their historic levels of profit. And I think, if, you know, they aren't going to bounce back quickly. But if they if they do bounce back, then, you know, they, are, they look very, very cheap now, very risky. But, you know, also, you know, these, these are the kind of kind of areas that, you know, the private investor can take their time and start looking at. You know, that's to buy them. But this is a good good a time as any to uh, to build a watch list. I mean, you know, I look take you know we've mentioned W H Smith quite a lot on this podcast. You know, do I think W H Smith will go bust? I don't. I don't. I think it'll go through an incredibly rough time. You know, if people aren't travelling through train stations and airports um, and high street, it's going to be rough. You know, sadly, that the you know they've got a lot of you know they have a lot of hospital stores, and I imagine that you know they could get quite busy. But you know, this is a business that you know when things are going well, it, it's it's a good company. I mean, Hollywood Bowl's another one. You know, they came out this week and said that their their trading had been been doing exceptionally well. You know, I think their like for like sales were up by nine percent. But of course, bowling alleys are not exactly the kind of places that people are going to right now. And that business is actually going to be temporarily closed down. Um, but it could come back. It will come back. I mean, it enters this position with virtually no debt. You know, if you take away the lease and the rents, it has no debt. You would have to think that this is a company that probably can go to a bank and get cash flow to keep it keep itself going. Yes, it comes back with a lot more debt or more debt, hopefully not a lot more debt. The economic pretty good these things generate high profits high high amounts of free cash flow and you could pay that debt back and you could see this business getting back to something like what it was over you know maybe two or three years and become quite interesting you know right right now you don't want to be the banker that shuts down businesses that have suffered because of the coronavirus it's a possibility that we won't see lots of businesses shut down because there will be a, there will be some, a lot of forgiveness 
you know, we're seeing lots of measures to uh, protect tenants, to protect, you know, uh, small small shopkeepers. So, 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 you know, you you wonder the same sort of approach will be extended to even large businesses like Hollywood Bar. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, even mentioned Sydney World um, last week. You know, I mean, Sydney World's a different different kettle of fish, but it is loaded up with debt. But you know, if you're a banker and you've lent money to these these companies, you actually want to do as everything you can to stop it going bust, because then it becomes your problem. And I think what the government and the Bank of England, you know, has done is that it's saying, look, they're standing behind the banking system and saying, look, we're, we're going to stand behind the cash that you need to lend out to keep businesses going. And this is something that is different from 2008 when there was a big failure to do that quickly enough. And I, th- and I, and I think this is, this is the positive thing that businesses like this, um, can you know i think i think can survive and, ho- and hopefully will survive one thing that hasn't survived in a lot of cases is dividends um unsurprisingly when cash flow is at a premium companies are not going to be giving that back to shareholders so so i guess a lot of people who are reliant on dividends for income are in a pretty bad place at the moment what what do you think they should be doing uh yeah i mean it's true i mean i think even even i mean next came out this morning and that that is a that is a company that quite rightly a lot of people have high regard for, including me. And it it was you know, it was mentioning that one of it, one of its options to preserve cash was not not to pay a dividend. And um, so, I mean, we've seen you know companies like Marston's come out and say it's probably not going to pay a dividend. Shoe Zone is another one. And it's, it's no surprise that if you're going to be asking for cash, it's probably if, if you can avoid paying it out, it means you don't have to ask for as much. And it, make, it makes a lot of sense. But, I, you know, I, I, I go on and say, look, there are sections of the market where I think that there are quite decent sources of, of dividend income. You know, I mentioned this last week in my in my main article in the Investors Chronicle. I think, you know, I think the water companies and to an extent electricity grid companies like National Grid, Scottish and Southern Energy, um, water companies are paying four and a half percent to five percent. Um, the electricity companies five and a bit percent, six percent in SSE. They're not risk free. But these are the kind of businesses that have got pretty secure income streams and if people are given forgiveness for paying their electricity bills or paying their water bills you would hope that the government would step in and provide the cash we are in uncertain times you can never say never in a market like this but those are the kind of areas where you start thinking yeah you know if i'm if i'm given the choice between if i'm an income seeker i mean these have always been popular choices of income uh, for investors and I think they're not bad places right now and actually we've got a, a feature coming out next week uh, on this very subject looking at companies paying dividends that are perhaps a little safer um, for those who are still in need of uh, or, or looking towards equities as a source of income thank you very much good talking Phil thanks John so I don't know about you but I, I found that discussion really uh, rather reassuring um, that although we potentially face some very difficult weeks and months ahead of us There is light at the end of the tunnel as the pharmaceutical industry finds uh, its way towards a cure for COVID. And uh, policymakers' interventions, hopefully, 
give us some economic hope as well. And, and that many companies that we, we cover, we write about a lot, will uh, will live uh, to fight another day. Um, as you probably noticed, this is a slightly different kind of podcast as well. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we put the magazine together remotely this week. We've had to do the same, obviously, with the podcast. So uh, apologies for any quality issues, but I think we've done it okay. There's lots and lots in the magazine uh, this week, um, mostly covid Related, the new section obviously dominated uh, by the outbreak, what it means for supermarkets, where we've seen uh, lots and lots of incredible scenes uh, this week uh, of stockpiling. Um, the insurance industry uh, is a really one to keep an eye on. We've, uh, we've had a look at that uh, and what happens there uh, when, when people start to claim for, for, for the huge losses uh, that they face as a result of the outbreak. Um, we've actually got some non-COVID stuff. Philip Ryland is looking uh, at acquisition accounting. Uh, and Leonora Waltz is looking at VCTs. Um, lots and lots and lots of company results. We're still uh, slap bang in the middle of results season and we're seeing lots of COVID-related news from the many, many companies reporting. And as well as that, we've got all the usual tips uh, and comments. Uh, we've got some really interesting pieces from uh, Be- Mr. Bearble and Chris Dillo on uh, covid uh, what pandemics uh, have done in the past and what this potentially means for our belief system. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again uh, to Megan and Phil, even though they're not in the room here. Um, And uh, we will be back again next week, hopefully having worked out how to do this remote thing a little bit better. Thank you all and uh, keep safe this week. Thank you.